Welcome to Him We Proclaim, a podcast devoted to the preaching ministry of the Mount Church. Know that the following sermon is specifically intended to build up our local church in Clemson, South Carolina. Feel free to listen along and distribute what you hear, while prioritizing what we pray is the faithful preaching ministry of the healthy local church to which you meaningfully belong. With that, all grace to you as you listen to this episode of Him We Proclaim. I invite you to open your Bible to John chapter 9. We're going to pick up in verse 1. John writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that as Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he's like him. He kept saying, I am the man. And so they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and received my sight. And they said to him, where is he? And he said, I don't know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. And now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God because he keeps on doing these things on the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? And he said, he's a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind. And they received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? And his parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he's old enough, he's of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, he is of age, ask him. And so for the second time they, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God, we know that this man is a sinner. And he answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know is that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I've told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, you are his disciples. 
We are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. And the man answered, why this is an amazing thing. You don't know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have seen him. (laughs) And it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I, I believe. And he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity, the privilege, the joy, the freedom to be able to come and gather with your people and to open up your word and to hear you, I pray, hear you speaking to our hearts. We ask that you would pour out your spirit without whom we are completely inadequate and insufficient both to preach and to receive preaching. And so please give this good gift to us for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. So far as I know, uh, it was uh, a poet named W.H. Auden who coined the phrase, more than meets the eye. More than meets the eye. How what we see with our eyes does not always tell the whole story about what our eyes are actually seeing. There is more to see. There is a, maybe even another way of seeing. And uh, that's, that's never really been more true than with respect to Jesus. Uh, for instance, we know from the passage in Isaiah uh, that he had no physical beauty. He had no physical beauty that we should desire him. And yet, to God, he was altogether lovely. No one was ever more beautiful to him who defines true beauty than Jesus. Or you just think a week ago, uh, here was a man, and uh, he was not yet 50 years old. Not yet 50 years old, and yet he was self-identifying as the ancient of days. He was self-identifying as God eternal. Before Abraham was, he said, do you remember this? I am. Okay, that's more than meets the eye. Now, what can complicate matters is that we're all born spiritually blind. Seeing Jesus as the light of the world, Savior divine, is a spiritual sight. It's a spiritual seeing. So the inability to see Jesus as he really is is not first a malfunction in our eyes. It's a malfunction in our hearts. We may see him just fine, like all these folks have in the Gospel of John, and still refuse to see him the way we must because of this thing called sin. Sin is is, is more than something that we as human beings do. Sin is a principality that's always working to be blinding souls to the truth, particularly about Jesus. That's why one may encounter Jesus and see glory. (laughs) Leave the whole world just to have Him. While another 
in the same encounter sees nothing but what their soul finally despises and rejects. Seeing they do not see in that soul-saving way. The Christian, I want you to understand this morning, the Christian is a Christian because they've been brought by grace to see Jesus with the eyes of faith. They have been convinced, even without seeing Him with our physical eyes, that Jesus is all that He says He is. We have been granted to see that great more than might have met our eyes. So, it's the goal of our text this morning to help us see all of this. So let's begin in verse 1 by looking at the working light before the coming night. And as we come to it, it's important to recall again, uh, Jesus has just identified himself as the I am of the OT, the I am of the Old Testament. And because the folks that he says this to, because they knew exactly what he was saying, they went all martial law on him. Do you remember this? They pick up stones to stone him uh, immediately, and so he immediately leaves them and walks out of the temple. It's a very sad tale. Now, on the heels of that, that's verses 58, 59 of chapter 8, we're now chapter 9, verse 1, on the heels of that, it's at least intriguing how John says in our verse 1 that Jesus, what? Passed by. He passed by a man blind from birth. I mean, he could just mean that Jesus just passed by the man. He just walked by this man. Or he might also mean something more like Exodus 34. When in passing by Moses, you remember this episode? Passing by Moses, God revealed his glory to Moses. And I kind of think I lean in that direction here. Before Abraham was, I am, and then he passes by this man who was born blind. There's more than meets the eye. Behind the obvious meaning, John's making a, a veiled reference to what we might call a theophany, or, or maybe even better, a Christophany. The man Jesus means to be seen by people, and this man in particular <clears throat> as the Lord Jesus Christ. It means for the veil to be pulled back on His divine glory so as to be seen truly in the soul of people. And it's this thing that I think guides the whole narrative of John chapter 9. And so while it says uh, Jesus saw a man born blind, the real question is, in John chapter 9, is will this man see Jesus as he truly is? And so, we're off. And the story begins with a theological question. Theological question. There was a commonly held belief that all suffering, like this, born blind, all suffering, was owing to some besetting sin in the sufferer. It was thought to be evidence of a, of a breach of faith or a breach of fellowship with God, some transgression. You see in the text that even Jesus' disciples assume that that's the case here. And without really dismissing the possibility that our sin and our suffering can be related, I think what we want to say, to be brief with it, is that the causality behind any episode of suffering is only fully known to God, ultimately. Only if you remember this from our time in Job. Uh, but at one level, Job suffered all that he suffered, not because God thought that he was the most sinful man on the planet. He suffered all that he suffered because God thought that he was the most righteous man on the planet. And just so, you can run to the life of Joseph, or pretty much any true prophet, or you can just run to the cross of Jesus and see the same kind of thing. So the, the causality of suffering is way more complex than we might think at first. And so what Jesus answers their question in verse 3 with is unexpected, I think. They say, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So we just need to see again that sin as cause 
sin as cause of suffering? That's not a, a question here. It's an assumption. Who, who sinned? And Jesus now confounds all that. He says, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So, it was God purposing a trial of our fallen condition for His greater glory. It was, in the end, a a bitter providence, that's what we call it, a bitter providence intended to reveal Jesus to our sinful souls. And so in this case, in this case, a, a single disease, congenital blindness, would ultimately suffice for the good of souls, I'd wager, in the untold millions. I mean, how many people have come across John chapter 9 and been blessed by it? Okay. Now, in saying that, that's not at all to be dismissive of all the hurt that this man's blindness entailed throughout the course of his life. It's just at the same time to be decidedly Godward in our understanding of it. We have to get there. It's super hard, but in our suffering, we must, through many tears, learn to be decidedly Godward in all of it. I imagine this man right now in glory is presently all smiles. So, suffering I want us to see is redeemable. Uh, It's never meaningless. Even when it's not alleviated for us, there is a purpose in it from God who only does what is right. And here, Jesus gives us the the baseline for the purpose. It's for the glory of God. It's that Jesus might be truly revealed for who He truly is. I just want to say too here, Man, how He is revealed. Not not just when the pain of our suffering is past, but even more so maybe, when in the pit of that pain, you cling to Him all the more tightly. You show Him, even then, to be worthy still of all your life. Then we see His glory. Well, here it seems we have a peculiar instance in which Jesus is meant to right a thing, right a wrong maybe, in order to reveal a thing about himself. It's to regenerate his eyes in order to alight souls. That's the lesson in the little parable of verses 4 and 5. If you look there, it's that on the way to the cross, God ordained works for Jesus that in doing them would preach something to the world. And that sermon is, He is the light of the world. That's the message. And we remember what that entails, don't we? It's that Jesus is the climactic self-disclosure of God to a sin-darkened world. It's that He's the only Savior of sinners. And before we head into that then, just note, I want us to note how He includes His disciples in the working of those works. You see that there? His disciples were to be more than mere spectators to the divine spectacle, knowing full well that He alone could actually effect them, perform them still. He invited them to be participants in His labors. He invites them here to be lamps who are reflecting His his glory. And dear ones, listen, uh, we're to be no less than that Today. And it's true. When Jesus left, right? He died, he rose, he ascended. When he left, the world went dark for a little bit. Until Pentecost. There was the outpouring of the the Holy Spirit. And then there was the constituting of the church. And in this sense, in this sense, Jesus is still now in the world by means of what? His body. The church. So just ask us this morning, are you and I shining as lights in the world for Jesus? 
Are we a lampstand reflecting His glory? Are we a new creation community in day-to-day practice? Are we a seeing people who are helping blind people, blind in heart, to truly see Him? Are we preaching His Word? Are we regularly sharing His Gospel? Opportunities are all around us. Are we sharing His Gospel? Are we showing His worth? Well, He Himself was yet on earth here. He's not left yet. And without the man asking for it, you see verse 6, Jesus spits on the ground and He creates a mud pie and He anoints What's the word there? He anoints the man's eyes with the mud pie and then he sends him off to wash in the pool of Siloam. And still, we want to recognize that while that may sound all well and good, we've heard this story maybe a hundred times or more, so we kind of know what's going to happen, but, but it's good for us sometimes just to stop and go, okay, what if that doesn't happen? What if he goes and he does all that and there's no good effect? If the man does this only to remain blind, Houston, we have a problem. And so whatever happens next is the the truly vital thing in this passage. And so we see the man does what Jesus says. He is immediately obedient to the word of Christ. We're told very simply, verse 7, that he went and he washed and he came back Seeing, there was ocular regeneration. Okay, uh, I saw a video the other day of a little girl who uh, she she was deaf from birth, and uh, she had so she had never heard a sound in her life, and then she heard a sound by some like amazing technology. They put it around her ears, and she heard a sound for the very first time. And of course, you can imagine that her reaction to that was just like. Priceless. It's like, what's going on? I got all this stuff going on around me. I didn't even know it was there. And I imagine it was like that with this man. I mean, one who had never seen anything but darkness now saw anything he laid his eyes upon. <laughs> his eyes took in light. They worked. He saw the world around him. It came into focus. He had what we call vision. So, so that's what water looks like. And the sky. <laughs> and those, those chirping things that I hear all the time. And the sun. Oh my goodness. <laughs> How bright is the sun? That's what my neighbor's faces look like. That's what my parents' faces look like. And that sight says, Jesus is the light of the world. He's one whose spit, if you go to Leviticus 15 verse 8, was unclean. He's the one whose spit makes clean. (laughs) A thing that sin brought into the created order, Jesus just put out in this man's life. As God formed Adam from the dust of the ground, Genesis 2-7, so Jesus reformed this man's eyes from the dust of the ground. He brought it into submission, this blindness, to his own power, his own creative power. Who is he? Really? Well, George read it for us at the beginning. Isaiah 42, 6 and 7, I give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, those who sit in darkness. So Jesus has made his case again about who he is. And it comes now to the now seeing man to just drive it home. For us, as far as he can anyway. And so to his interrogation, an interrogation, by the way, that's meant to discredit Jesus, which by its very occurrence only further 
validates him. It says he really did something here. He really did something. And so the rest of our text shows what it means to have truly seen the light. As those who should see, make every effort not to see. And this man, who's been made to see, testifies boldly and without bias to who Jesus is by the obvious facts and what they say about him. And so picking up in verse 8, we have the man's neighbors. The man's neighbors, he clearly, they clearly uh, discern a, a change in him. They're not even sure it's the same man. Do you see that? They'd known him so long as the beggar he was that the, the seeing man before them was pretty much unknown to him, to them. Is that the same guy? <laughs> uh, I think so. No. No, it can't be, can it? And so they disputed. But what was thus indisputable is that as it was him, as he repeatedly said it was him, this man was different. And that Jesus was the one who accounted for that difference. And so you see in verse 11, they ask him, how were your eyes opened? That doesn't happen every day. I don't know if you know, that doesn't happen every day. And in some, the way that he answers the Pharisees then is, Jesus. Je- Jesus did this. He-, he said, this, and thus I did that, and when I did that, I received my sight. I just want us to see here how different this man is from the one Jesus healed back in John chapter 5. You remember him. The difference is already remarkable and only grows brighter, really. Remember that man, he grumbled at the grace that Jesus wanted to offer. This man here in our text, he just simply took Jesus at his word. That man didn't even catch Jesus' name. Do you remember that? Didn't know his name. This man knows it really well. The man called Jesus. He did this for me. That man finding it was Jesus who healed him. Do you remember this? He, he became an informant against Jesus. He tried to dodge a charge from the Pharisees by putting all the blame on Jesus. But this man, he owns the gift that he has received. He owns that he needed help, and he owns that Jesus was the one who helped him. From him I received, note, not deserved, I received my sight. So something heavenly, something heavenly is brewing in this man's heart. It's only further highlighted now as he comes to his formal examination before the Pharisees. It seems his neighbors want to know from the Pharisees, what are we to make of this? And yet it appears the Pharisees aren't entirely certain either. They're certain mostly that they do not want to give glory to Jesus. That much they're certain of. They're just not certain how to avoid giving glory to Jesus in light of things like this. He keeps doing divine works, new detail alert here, on the Sabbath. That's why the man's testimony is all the grander. He knew what day it was when Jesus opened his eyes. And it did not stop him from giving praise to Jesus. Well, we can't have that. We can't have that. And so verse 15, the Pharisees ask for the account which the seeing man repeats for them. And as with his neighbors, so even among his spiritual leaders now, his clerics, there is a a split. There is a division, which is notable. Really notable. Because whether they will admit it or not, it admits Jesus was amassing wonders that were beyond the rational ability to keep on denying him. And they were spooked. (laughs) And they were completely unsettled by Jesus. He was taking away all grounds they thought they had for unbelief so that all they had left was, well, we just don't want to believe Him. It was becoming plainer by the day that they did not truly know God. And as evidence, they do something, I think, virtually unheard of. The quote-unquote seers temporarily submit their uncertainty, verse 17, to the seeing man. 
You see what they say there? Um, he opened your eyes. What did you say about him? And without blinking, he says, Jesus is a prophet. Now you say, that's not quite good enough, dude. It's true. But it's not bad at this point either. You need to understand that most of the religious watchdogs just said, verse 16, listen, here's what we know. We know that Jesus is a Sabbath breaker. We know that Jesus is not from God. And it's in their faces that this man has just called Jesus a prophet. And in calling him a prophet, A, makes way too much sense. And in doing so, B, going directly against their conviction, says, this man's from God. He's a true prophet. He's come from God. Now, that will, then, that's in him to speak favorably of Jesus is the more greatly dignified. Why? Because as the text moves forward, you see that the Pharisees' power to oppress does not stay hypothetical. It does not abide in the realm of threats. It leaves that sphere and it becomes personal. It comes into his parents' living room, so to speak, and it will, we'll see, be exercised against this man. And so we come to verse 18. And we're told how they stonewalled the undeniable force of his testimony. They just said, yeah, we don't believe you. <laughs> we don't believe you. We don't believe that you were really blind. We believe that you're making it up as you go. You're making things up along the way, which is really rich coming from them. What you see, though, that they cannot even settle there because, to their credit, I think, they do call his parents to the stand. Is this your son? Was he born blind? And if so, how does he see? And because they are two, their testimony in a Jewish court of law is well within the bounds of sufficiency. Okay? And so they confirm, yes, this man is our son. And yes, he was born blind. And while one could wish, they'd have gone on and said, we therefore believe what he has said about Jesus. Even without it, it's enough to verify, yeah, he was blind. And now he sees. It's sad though, isn't it? How they hang their own son out to dry. We need to be sure where the devil can no longer cover the truth, he will attempt to silence it. He'll, he'll, he'll tie down the tongue by various threats. Sometimes they're not even coming from people, they're just in our own minds. If you speak up for Jesus... If you leave my way for His way, I will make sure it costs you everything. And so He demotes faith by promoting fear. And that's what wins here with the parents. We, we won't speak to the how. We'll let our son speak for himself. On that, we cannot risk it all for Jesus. They'd rather keep up relations with the synagogue, relations with the blind guides, than with God. And they're now seeing child and the one who enabled that sight. Friends, Jesus is everywhere open about this. 
if you would be my disciple, you must take up your, everybody say it, your cross. And follow me. Daily, he says in Luke's Gospel. What does it profit you to gain the whole world if in doing so, you forfeit your soul? Those are not equal. So it all comes back to the seeing man in verse 24. He is the man, but who is Jesus? They say to him, Give glory to God. Speak up for Him. Stop all this mess. Testify truly. But is that really what they want Him to do? Do you see how they feed Him His lines? <laughs> how they front with their fearsome opinion? What do they say? They don't just say, give glory to God. They say, give glory to God. We know this man is a sinner. They don't want the God's honest truth. What they want is to have their biases stroked. And we can bless God that this man refuses to do that. That he does really give glory to God. He says, verse 25, I don't know about all that, Jesus being a sinner and whatnot, one thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. <laughs> and when in verse 26 they repeat their initial inquiry, what does he do? <laughs> he calls them on it. He sees. Something's not right with y'all. Their insistence on betraying, uh, is betraying their unwillingness to, to heed the truth. To let the facts stand on their own merit. Because it would mean, God forbid, that they were wrong about Jesus. And so the man's like, you guys are either terribly dense or incredibly interested in also becoming one of his disciples. Presumably like I have become. And as they cannot stand for either of those options, they make it immediately clear which it is. They, they put off repentance. And they begin to do what people do when they have no more argument to make. They start reviling him. They put him down for identifying with Jesus. Listen here, seeing man. We follow Moses. We know God's spoken to Moses. But as for Jesus, we know He's a nobody from nowhere known. So, so you can go ahead and you can hitch your wagon to Him if you want. Just know, we know stuff. And by Moses, Jesus ain't it. Now, know your place, get in that place, and settle there. And our guy, <laughs> our guy says but I thought you wanted me to give glory to God. So how about I do that? Notwithstanding your power play. This, verse 30, is amazing that you, being who you are, don't know the origin of a man who opened my eyes. Let me tell you what we all know. God listens to those who are in a right relationship with Him. That this man then did what had never been done in the history of the universe. Says something about Him. Like, He's not a sinner as you think He is. Maybe He's in a right relationship with God. Maybe. As I said earlier, he's from God. And thus, as Jesus has already argued to them, you've got to feel sort of the force of this guy's argument with them. He, he, he kind of says, you may not know Moses as well as you think you do. You may need to go back and read again. 
you may need to see that this man is the one about whom God, through Moses, spoke. The evidence suggests Moses may accuse you of the gravest error a soul can make. And with that, this man loses his world. But he does not forfeit his soul. They close their ears. They they revile him and they puff up their chest and they stand over him and they cast him out. What his parents had feared, their son experiences. He's excommunicated from that community, but not from the community of Jesus. There's a young lady with a liberal arts background in a very secular part of the U.S., who had come to faith under the regular preaching of the Word of God. Uh, We were finishing the Gospel of Luke at the time, and I was preaching on the exchange there between Jesus and the thief on the cross. And as she tells it, it was there. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. (laughs) And Jesus says, okay, I will. She says, there he opened my eyes. So that she cast herself upon the grace of God in Christ. But as this man, she quickly discovered what it would mean for her to stand with Jesus. She had her community prior to coming to faith in Jesus. She had her echo chamber. And they desperately repeatedly tried to pull her back into that fold. What are you doing? You can't believe in that garbage. You're wasting your life. You've got your life in front of you. You're throwing it all away. Don't do that. We can thank God that by His grace she had truly found her life so that she did not turn back. She stood with Jesus. She stands with Jesus today. And I'll just say we need more of that today. We need more Helen Roosevelt's. She was a missionary to the Congo, I think, during a time of civil war in which she was taken and she was repeatedly, unthinkably abused. And when people would later ask her Was your service to Jesus worth that? She would tell them, you know, I stopped asking myself that a long time ago. I'm obsessed with but one rhetorical question, and that is, is He worthy? And as we sing, she said, He is. He is. We need more lions and lionesses for the sake of the lion of the tribe of Judah today. We need more who will give glory to Jesus in answer to whatever the abuses may be. We need more who will give glory to Him before all of the reviling rabble. We need more who will give glory to Him at whatever the cost may be, even if it's losing our parents. We need to have it in our hearts to give Him glory whatever the world threatens. Knowing this, most importantly, verse 35. Listen. You will never be cast out by men, but you will be scooped up by Jesus. You will never be put out by the world for His sake, but He will find you out and give you the greatest comfort. It's not just that He is worthy. It's that He is 
perfectly trustworthy, dependable. We will never outgive his value. Believe that. That's one thing. Another thing is, we will never outgive his returns to us as we see it here. We can be blown about and tossed around. We can be kicked out and killed. Jesus will be there to embrace us. He comes to this man after a a chapter of exposing, you remember, inauthentic believers for what they really were, and he asks him now, do you believe in the Son of Man? And that man says, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And with the sweetest touch, Jesus tells him, remember he was blind just a few minutes ago. Jesus tells him, you have seen him. And it is he who is speaking right now to you. And the seeing man says, Lord, I believe. I believe that you are him. And John says that man then worshiped Jesus. That's incredible. He believed Jesus was who he said he was, and then he worshiped him. He gave to Jesus something that belongs to God alone. And he's a Jewish man. And what's crazier still is that Jesus doesn't correct him. Jesus receives it. You're doing what's right. And it brings us back to what I said at the start then. Jesus means to be seen by people as God. As Christ the Lord. The Savior of sinners. And it's this man, not the ones that we would expect to see. It's this man who sees the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In other words, he's received light and sight twice over. Once in his eyes, so that he can look upon that face. But further, and most importantly, within his heart, so that he can see more than meets those eyes. He can see God in Christ. He can see the truth as it is in Jesus. He sees in order to believe in Him and thereby be saved from His sins. My question for us this morning is, have you received that sight? Every Christian has. But have you? We need to understand as our text closes that there is a sense in which Jesus came into the world for judgment. Light exposes what? Darkness. Sight exposes blindness. The mere presence of Jesus in the world divides the world. As He's the radiance of the glory of God, our response to Him necessarily reveals something about us. If in pride you think you see, you think Jesus is dispensable, He does not jive with your view of things, and you will not be moved off your spot despite repeated shots of His light into your darkness, blindness will become you. Whereas, if you're willing to admit that you're blind, that you would see God, but you just can't see Him. I've got good news for you. Jesus came into the world that you really might see the Lord and know Him for yourself. In Perverses 40 and 41, You must see Jesus like that. He gives this brief riddle, and the Pharisees are near enough to hear it. And so they just ask him, Do you mean, do you really mean 
You can feel their offense. Do you really mean to include us in that? Are we also blind? And he tells them, in essence, if you were blind, so that you relied upon me for sight, so that you believed in me, you'd be forgiven. But since, in spite of me, you say you see, you stand condemned. Your guilt, he says, remains. That's what no one wants to hear. You've got to feel the force of that. Justification before God necessitates regeneration in your heart. That is, to be forgiven your sins, you must believe in Jesus. But to believe in Jesus, apparently, we need Jesus to give our souls that soul-saving sight of Him. We need God, who said in the beginning, let light shine out of darkness, to shine the light of the glory of the knowledge of His grace in the face of Jesus Christ within our very own hearts. We need to see in Christ crucified and raised the very salvation of God for sinners like you and me. We need to see more, that is, than meets the natural eye of the blind soul. And so, friend, we just send you to Jesus now. We send you to Jesus to wash and to receive your sight. And beloved, the call for us this morning, I think is clear, is simply to praise Him for His grace in our lives. It's to give Him glory. It's to know Him so well that whatever it might cost you to testify of Him, you'll do it. You'll give Him glory because He is so great. And so glorious. It's to say with this man. And to sing. As we're about to. With John Newton. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. That saved a wretch like me. I once was lost. But now I'm found. You finish it. Was blind. But now I truly see. Jesus is the light of the world. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. I thank you for the patience of the folks here this morning. It is warm. But I do pray that you would take your word now and you would warm our hearts. Be glorified, we pray, as we move into continuing to worship you in song and singing of this amazing grace. Get glory for yourself through it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.